Hey, everyone, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast with me, your host, Ethan Appleby. I'm very excited to bring you along as I dive into conversations with amazing people who are at the intersection of art and technology. Each week, you'll hear a different angle about how tech is bringing radical change in the way all of us interact with art. We have on artists to first-time collectors, as well as CEOs from some of the top digital art companies. We'll also look at the effects social media sites and crowdsourcing platforms are having on the art world and explore how other creative industries, such as music and fashion, were democratized using technology. Before we get started, I want to tell all the artists listening about Bango. If you're like many of the artists I know, you spend more time managing your career than you do creating art. Bango helps you with this. To learn more, go to bangoart.co slash podcast. That's B-A-N-G-O dot co slash podcast. And if you're looking for original art, Bango is an amazing place to find art from some of the best emerging artists. Now, in this episode, I'm excited to welcome the CEO of Museum, Brendan Sieko. You know, the last time you went to a museum, you were probably offered one of those big, clunky audio tour guides that are a pain to carry around, have no video or interaction, and they seem like they haven't changed in the last 50 years. Well, Cuisine is making them a thing of the past, turning your smartphone into your personalized digital docent. Today, I talked to Brendan about how making a website for McJagger led to launching Cuisine, his thoughts on how cultural institutions are adapting to a digital world, and if art will ever be as popular as music. So please, allow me to welcome today's guest, Brendan Sieko. Hey, Brandon, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Ethan. So to start, tell the audience out there, you know, what is Qzium? Yeah, so I'm the founder and CEO of Qzium. Uh, we're a company that helps museums, arts organizations, and cultural nonprofits with visitor, member, and patron engagement. We got our start focusing really on that element around how do we create the best, most engaging, most educational experience for visitors when they come to the museum. And a lot of this came out of kind of the rejection of those traditional audio guides, which weren't really evolving forward with our expectations as, as humans, with our expectations as consumers and, and cultural, you know, uh, vultures and, and so on. So um, we started to look at how mobile was really starting to shape the everyday experience, um, everyday interaction and bring that into the museum and cultural uh, realm in a way that was turnkey, affordable, flexible, and really immersive for the museum goer. Great. So, so give us an example of an institution that you've worked with and, and you know, how a user, such as our audience, would go in and, and experience Cuseum. Absolutely. So we work with museums all around the globe. I'll, I'll just kind of narrow in on, on a you know, use case with, let's say, the Prez Art Museum down in Miami or the ICA up here in Boston. I walk through your doors and, you know, I want to have the, the best possible experience. And usually, traditionally, what that's been is being walked through with a curator or a docent or an artist. Now, that isn't available for every single person that walks through. And how museums have bridged that, you know, challenge is having some sort of interpretation uh, available to you, whether it be an object label or a gallery guide or one of those clunky old audio, uh, audio ones. Um, and so we built something that, you know, I downloaded or access it on my device. And as I walk through the museum, that content is seamlessly delivered to me. As I enter the gallery, I'm welcomed by the curator's voice. 
as I walk up to a specific painting, uh, the artist's voice uh, and process comes to life. And so it's really uh, about being a digital docent or a digital guide uh, in your pocket or in your hand. That's great. So it really plays into this idea of experiences, which you see more and more in retail and you know, something that I think the millennial generation really, you know, begs for. It's, it's more about experiences than anything else. Absolutely. I, I mean, if you can have a companion with you, a digital companion that can really change the experience that you have for the better by providing you, you know, perspective that you wouldn't otherwise have access to, that's really where the magic happens. And you know, for a lot of people, especially millennials, it's hard to kind of uh, crack through that shell of, of what this all means, especially in a more contemporary uh, art museum or really any museum, how to make it that much more interesting or educational or give them that aha moment, give them that uh, platform for wonder. So this really aids in, in achieving that goal. That's great. So, you know, one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you is because, I mean, you have worked in the art industry. You've also worked in the music industry and you are the, definitely were the youngest entrepreneur that we've had on the show. Um, from when you got your start at what the age of 14 and there's a great story of, of how you met Mick Jagger. Um, you know, I would love, love to hear more about, you know, in creating, uh, it was called what 10 minute media, an agency for music entertainment. What did you learn and take away from that? And how did that inspire your move into the visual arts? So I, I started, uh, kind of dabbling in technology when I was around 11 years old, I'm the middle child of five kids. My mom drives a school bus. My dad is a plumber. I still have no idea how we got our hands on that first little computer, but I was around 11 and was really fascinated by this tool I could use to uh, design things, animate things, kind of bring things to life. And that really uh, captured my attention throughout my, my earliest uh, teenage years. So at that same point in my life, my interest in uh, punk rock music and uh, indie rock and all of that really started to uh, explode. And so I was uh, a youngster creating websites for all these local bands and musicians. And then what happened was this uh, band from Southern California signed to a major or a large indie label had a competition open to their fans. I submitted an interactive uh, kind of splash page promoting the new album, uh, one, uh, and then used that as an opportunity as a hungry kid to convince them, their, their management and their label to do their website. So that really gave me one step forward or a stepping stone into the music industry that over the, you know, the following years, um, you know, I, I created an agency that became one of the go-tos for, you know, Sony, Warner, EMI, Capital, Interscope. I've worked with Mick Jagger. I've worked with Katy Perry, Snoop Dogg, Lenny Kravitz, uh, all of these different uh, you know, music acts and global brands. Um, and so it was all this hunger that I had to take some of my passions, which were technology, design, art, music, and experience, throw them together into one thing and, and really specialize in, you know, creating these experiences, these moments, uh, online, uh, for the music, uh, industry. So tell me, how did that inspire Cuseum and getting into more, uh, of the fine arts? Design was really a gateway into art. And so being someone very interested in the aesthetics of things, I found myself going one step further and one step further. So for some people, if you get this design book and they're like, oh, like, oh, it's interesting watching these uh, designers collaborate with artists. Who's this Andy Warhol guy? What's pop art? And then you dive deeper and deeper and deeper into this rabbit hole of all of these different eras and influences and aesthetics. And it kind of pulls you further um, into 
into that area. And so for, for me, uh, my interest in art, fine art, decorative art, um, started to really burgeon and blossom when I was maybe 15, 16 years old. Um, and so that started to happen and this interest to do things that were a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more creative happened as well. Um, kind of throughout every every moment when I got started, I, I considered myself a designer. And then my hat as a designer evolved into technologist and then entrepreneur once I got the chops for business. And so all of that said, uh, this interesting thing happened uh, when I was probably, might have been like 21, 22, this museum in New York City reached out to 10 Minute Media, uh, really interested in the work we were doing. They had read some article and they wanted to enlist us to help them with all things digital from e-commerce to web to experience. And um, we typically would not have taken on projects or clients like that, given the importance of focus. We had built this uh, reputation, this expertise in music and entertainment, we should not dilute that. But for me, it was the museum that I had fallen in love with. They were showing Klimt, Sokoshka, Schiele. And um, for me, the opportunity to work with this museum that housed some of the most inspirational artists, uh, for me, uh, was kind of a match made in heaven. So you have this mix of high culture and rock and, you know, rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, pop, you know, music, uh, you know, uh, design uh, approach to things, uh, or rather the reputation that my, my company had um, and pairing with with this museum. And it really opened my eyes um, beyond just being passionate, passionate about what they were doing and the works that they showed. It opened my eyes to the importance of digital and the cultural equation, but also how painful, frustrating, expensive, and obsolete all of the tools that these museums and cultural institutions had. So very, very much segued into uh, what became today's museum. And I love that because I think from sort of the tech angle and starting a company, I mean, in a way, it was almost an accident, right? And that it's something that came to you and not something that you were seeking out, but an opportunity then that you really resonated with you. And so you jumped on it. You grew up in a smaller town outside of Boston. Usually you see people who are living in big cities are so involved with the scene. You know, they're so into something, perhaps in the art world, it's people who come from the traditional art world that, you know, are so in it that they don't see the frustration that others experience. How do you think growing up perhaps in a small town or not in one of the major art cities such as New York or LA or London, changed your perspective and helped influence QZM? I think in a lot of ways it freed me from the distractions of everyday buzz and noise that exist in uh, the more, you know, the, I guess what you'd call the epicenters of it all. Um, that said, I think it was probably one of the biggest disservices to myself to stay out that way as long as I did. Although most of my life, you know, uh, I was living there growing up there. I wish I had moved to New York to at least see and experience it and understand it a little bit earlier than I had. I beat myself up all the time. I mean, I moved to New York when I was maybe like 24. That's not late by any means, lived there for a little while, you know, found my place in Boston. But yeah, it's, it's always hard to say, um, you know, what living out, you know, in these areas that maybe don't have the most developed uh, ecosystems and art and technology, what the impact might be. And I really tried to explore that. And there were a couple things that I worked on, on that, you know, on that very question with talking to people like Bo Peabody, who founded one of the first social networks out in um, Williamstown, Massachusetts, which is really middle of nowhere where very rural community, you know, what was it that made that special? And 
I remember listening to some interviews with some of the founders of Twitter and Medium and Circa, who all kind of grew up in the Midwest, not in any major areas. Don't quote me on it. But um, I, I don't know. I think uh, today, you know, the city and the energy and the importance of being there is very different from when we all grew up. And I think we're likely going to raise our children and, and so on in these cities because we see that it's critical critical, absolutely critical that you're here uh, if you're serious and uh, really want to make uh, make some noise on the global stage. Yeah. So it's interesting, though. I, I want to dig deeper into that. I mean, you say that you beat yourself up about not diving into the epicenter sooner, but then you also said you know, in the sentence before that, that you think not being in the epicenter removed you from that music and from that noise. You know, and I also, I read an article where you talk about Boston being such a great place from a community perspective, because it's really aligned with what you're trying to do at QGM. And it goes beyond, you know, mutual passion and software. It's been perhaps kinder than you would argue New York would have been to help you create this. Yeah, what I was referring to a moment ago is more where I grew up. I didn't grow up in Boston. I grew up about two hours west of Boston. So really not even a, a region that feeds off of the energy of Boston. There is no rail between where I grew up in Boston. There's no commuter line. I think a lot of people where I grew up had more of a connection to New York City. Even that said, we're two and a half hours from New York City. So I think looking at where I am today and, and the value and benefit of being in a place like Boston is you're, you're absolutely right. In Boston, there's a different pace of things. There's a no-bullshit approach to the next big buzzy thing. And I think that leads to a fairly grounded, honest, you know, look yourself in the mirror and know who you are and who you're doing this for and the communities here to, to support it. I think there is a tremendous value in that, coupled with the fact that this community, Boston, is anchored by some of the most important cultural institutions, educational institutions, history, and, and so many other things that for, for my company and for my life and for a place that I want to be a part of and contribute to, I think Boston has been um, an incredible part of the QZM story so far. I love it. I think it's amazing to hear how your background has influenced, you know, the building and inspiration behind QZM and how you come, you know, from a smaller town and not the traditional art world, but actually from the music space and how now have now had such an amazing impact on the art world. Jumping back into QZM, though, you know, QZM is all about enhancing the visitor experience when going to museum and other art spaces. But do you think it encourages new patrons to come to these spaces? Absolutely. So there's been so much uh, conversation around the importance of digital digital strategy, um, accommodating, inviting, and engaging your visitor through whatever means necessary. And often it's about meeting people where they are. And today people are learning, communicating, seeing the world, socializing. So much takes place through our device. Um, And so to have that be a part of the uh, museum experience or the cultural experience is just the reality. you know, looking at the discovery of art and the promotion of culture and cultural capital, that's all taking place uh, through our devices today over over Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and, and all of these other marketplaces um, that you've been a part of creating and communities that you've been a part of creating. And so for us, we're really looking at that, um, you know, to some extent, that last hundred feet, that indoor on-site experience that isn't remote but also with one of our newest uh, products and you know, furthering our impact with these organizations, helping them engage uh, patrons and members and donors um, in a very different way. So really unlocking the power of digital for this sector is really important to us. And with that, I mean, how do you see technology you know, like Museum and the new products that you're launching continue to change the museum space? 
So for us, we're dedicated to helping museums operate more successfully. And we see digital as being a critical part of that. Um, everything that's happening in the traditional spaces, you know, the high tech space, of course, but uh, technology in any line of business has become a critical node, uh, whether it be you have a chief digital officer or a chief innovation officer or someone steering the ship to leverage these high impact, uh, you know, tools and solutions to solve the problems that you have. And so looking at what people have been able to achieve by analyzing data to understand their visitors, their members, their customers, and really any space has been critical. And so there's a lot of value to that, reaching people through multiple channels, uh, providing different mediums of, of content and messaging. It's just the, the critical pillar in any space. Why not the museum space? And I think that's what always catches uh, people's eye, whether it especially be the and it's especially uh, the eye of the, the journalists and the media is taking this thing that's for, uh, fairly uh, traditional, or at least formally seen as traditional, and pairing it up with something, you know, on the opposite side of the spectrum, which is new and innovative. And so I think there's a lot of excitement around art and technology, museum and the ways that museums are levering, leveraging technology. But I think at the end of the day, it's all about removing as many barriers as possible, making content and information as fluid as possible to get to as many, you know, ears and eyes and souls as possible. And that's kind of the direction everything is is going. Yeah, and let's build off that. I mean, you know, when I listening to what you do, and it's kind of like, you know, I love the idea of I can go in, it's like everyone has their, you know, personal docent and, and curator walking them through in a way, and they're looking at things and you've got the beacon technology that when you walk up to a piece, it pulls up a video about it, you know, but do you see, do you think it's still around a kind of core experience that is very similar that had I not had technology and a personal docent would be somewhat the same. You know, how, do you see the, the overall museum changing, the experiences that they're putting forward to people, the exhibits that they have? I mean, and how do you think it will continue over the next, you know, 10 years? So just even looking at what's uh, available to us today and some of the things that we're uh, working on right now, there's huge interest in augmented reality. There's huge interest in virtual reality. Um, we see VR right now as being overhyped. It's at peak, peak hype, and it's uh, not going to live up to some of the expectations today. That said, augmented reality, there's so many resources behind it. Uh, you have Apple investing heavily, Google investing heavily in this next phase of kind of the digital world, the digital and physical world. Ooh, so, what is that word again? Say it one more time. Digital. Uh, digital. I love that. I, I'm not taking credit for it, but I love that little term. But so things that are blurring the line between physical and digital. And in AR, there's just so many interesting use cases and potentials, not only on the interpretation or experience around the art and culture, but also the production of it. So right now we've been working with uh, a notable museum, a contemporary art museum, uh, and a few artists on investigating that very notion. What happens when technology is driven not by the technologist or the institution, but by the artist? What does that look like? What does it look like to create uh, you know, new works that were maybe previously an idea of physical or digital or somewhere in between, and to put those in the hands of people where you're truly blurring 
that idea and those ideas. Um, and so I think that we'll start to see today, maybe more than ever before, um, a lot more um, leveraging and encouragement around these new platforms. And, you know, 60 years ago, like, you know, I'm always interested in, you know, how, when, how has technology changed the production of art? And you can look back to the very inception of art and then fast forward to what Namjoon Puck was doing. And then fast forward to um, uh, Marilyn Minter and how she uses Photoshop. And then fast forward to uh, Tilt Brush Artist in, in Residence Program with Google. And so I think now the um, barriers to entry around these new technologies uh, are, are close to eliminated. Um, everybody has, uh, or, or most people have their hands on some of these tools versus back in the 60s, the machines that Namjoon Puck was working on were very expensive. Warhol and Herring worked on some pretty expensive uh, computers uh, through a, an NEA-funded project, uh, side note. Um, there's a VC in Boston who was a part of that, I think at Index, a funder of uh, um, what Pinterest. Uh, was it Index? I'll, I'll get back to you on that. But um, anyways, like looking back, like Gustav Klimt, uh, looking through a microscope like that influenced his work, his aesthetic. And so art and technology have often and, and always, I guess more so always intertwined in some way, shape or form. But right now there's such an appetite and such a, uh, appetite around the fact that it's like blurring again, these lines between what's real, what's not, what's possible. Um, so it's, it's exciting and it's definitely a part of what we do and what we want to be. Uh, kind of investigating and, and advancing in the cultural field. Yeah, and it's really interesting because we talk a lot on the show about the future of galleries and what that looks like. And, you know, you can you can very directly tie that to retail and how retail is, like, it's all, I mean, everything is becoming more about the experience, but with retail, you know, the Apple store you think about, or you go into something like Macy's or Nordstrom's and, like, with fashion, and, you know, it's very much their current experience and you end up buying online. And so with galleries, I think there's a notion of, you know, there will always be a role for a gallery and it's how does that play with their online strategy. It'll be interesting to see what that translates into in the museum space. Yeah, for sure. I'm always slightly different kind of opinions uh, about kind of the approach and the value for the museum versus the approach and the value for the gallery or the art fair. Tell us, what are your opinions? Um, well, I think that, you know, looking at retail, looking at the direction of retail and, and it's a confusing time. One thing, one side saying retail is dead. The other side, you know, having the brick and mortar go more digital, but also the digital go more brick and mortar, especially with some of the moves that, uh, Apple has, uh, sorry, not Apple, Amazon has made recently. And so, uh, it's a really confusing time and who's right, uh, what position is the most opportune. And with the, um, you know, with the gallery space and looking at, you know, some of the things that I see popping up in my feeds around kind of the small and mid-sized gallery facing death and, and decline versus like the giants getting stronger and stronger and more influential. And now even, you know, things um, refuting the value of the art fair based on the explosive inflated prices to participate. So it kind of has my sense, my head spinning a bit um, to even put together a cohesive response to what do I think, you know, this all means for galleries. I mean, for galleries, it's very clear that you need to have a digital strategy, 
have distribution channels as many as possible and have a little bit of a step further in your in, in business intelligence and being able to analyze uh, the the patterns of purchases and you know what sells what doesn't down to I don't want to say a science but you know it's a business and I think uh, galleries are are business museums are are not a business uh, but should leverage some of the you know more strategy oriented um, you know approaches to things so yeah it's very uh, it's very different I look forward to hearing the the podcast with the experts in the gallery space to hear what they're you know, with their, um, you know, ideas. I know there's like the, like, the, oh, you can see what it looks like in your home, you know, pull up this, this screen and you can resize it and, and uh, see how it will look in your home, you know, using uh, AR or, hey, you know, something with VR. It's just, it, it will be very interesting to see what ultimately provides value sustainably versus what's a flash in the pan, uh, flash in a pan and, and a gimmick. So, now, for all of you artists listening who want to be able to market yourselves like you are the most famous artist, Vango can help. Vango makes the entrepreneurial side of being an artist easy, saving you hours each week from the marketing and admin tasks so that you can focus on creating. In a way, Vango is like your virtual assistant or manager, and their killer feature is the ability to manage all of your online portfolios and storefronts in one place. They also create a website for you, show you who your collectors are, provide insights into what is selling, and they'll even help with your taxes. So if you're an artist who wants to spend time doing what you love, go to vangoart.co slash podcast to learn more. That's V-A-N-G-O-A-R-T dot co slash podcast. And now back to the episode. You mentioned being more data-driven. Have you seen or met with museums or galleries that you know that are being more data-driven or companies that are trying to help them with that? Um, so in the cultural sector, not so much. Uh, there are uh, highly paid consultants and consulting groups that will meet with, uh, with, meet with an organization and help them analyze and became, become more data-driven. But it's something that I haven't seen a tremendous amount of action in that really shows that this has been identified as a huge priority. In the gallery space, I, I really don't know. I mean, I've seen a couple of platforms pop up that help you analyze the value of your own personal collection and also indexes around, you know, what's a emerging artist versus an early blue chip, blue chip sell, sell now, all of these different, I guess you would say segments of the art market. But um, data-driven things in the art space, I think it's a really interesting time and as it makes its way into the hands of galleries i imagine it would be administered through those who already have the relationships maybe that be artsy or, or some other marketplace and we've also talked to stitch fix which is in the fashion industry as well as reverb nation and bands in town which are in the music industry and how what, what they've done to help you know be more data driven when it comes to determining to and engaging who your fans are and what your tastes are and it's it's really interesting because I think there's a lot the art world could learn from them absolutely so building off this and and you're you're a guy who comes from the music space, if you look back when the radio launched, there were a lot of people in the industry and maybe you could call them the purists who were really afraid that this was kind of like the death of live music. Why would you go to a concert when you know you have the music playing in your home? And I think we now you know fast forward seventy years, you've seen it actually had quite the opposite effect. 
right? I think the more people listen to music, you know, on an iPod now for the radio, the more into and the more they follow musicians and the more they want to go to their shows. Taking that into the art space, like why do you think the art world uh, and the institutions have, have been so slow to embrace technology? And do you feel like they're kind of resisting it more so because they're not quite sure how to handle it or what to do with it or think it's going to like take away part of the, their pie? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And I think um, looking at traditionally what has driven a lot of the decisions in the museum or any nonprofit sector it has often been the opinions and the power of the board, the board of directors, the board of trustees. And if you look at the, the demographics of those groups, they're a little bit, you know, a little bit older, um, a different generation than, than mine and yours and, 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 uh, and so on. And so looking at kind of the, the opinions about uh, purity um, in the cultural space, curatorial excellence, uh, not willing to tolerate dumbing down content or mission for the masses. And so I think that is the approach that is starting to fade away, you know, looking at even the history of museums and what was valued in their, you know, mission. It was very much about the curatorial approach, um, a little bit more so than the than the educational approach. And then education became very important. And now community impact uh, and inclusion and equity, and diversity are becoming important. And so it's just the natural evolution of any space that's been slow to um, evolve given the constraints of their model, given the constraints of their, their financial position, and given the constraints of their board of directors or, or leadership. And so I think with more uh, museum directors opening their eyes to this, having digital in their own lives, it's not about being an early adapter. I mean, show me a museum director that doesn't have, you know, an iPhone or a mobile phone or uses a computer every day. I think those days existed, you know, 20 years ago. And that legacy is uh, fading away as we see these success stories and we see everything around us being uh, disrupted or, or innovative, uh, innovated or advanced forward due to these tools. Um, so looking at the music industry, I think, is, is an interesting place to, you know, place to be. I think the thing that's amazing and, and powerful and people tend to agree with, you know, record high museum visits of some of the anchor institutions globally is people want this experience. They want this social experience. They want to be physically standing before one of these paintings or sculptures or something that they couldn't experience anywhere else. So there's something to be said about that. And I think digital adding to that equation makes it a really powerful, beautiful time for the cultural sector where maybe 10 years ago is kind of a different story. Do you think that that continues to slow down the adoption of art on a broader scale? What do you mean slow down? Do you think that the reluctance of institutions and galleries to embrace digital has not hurt them specifically, but also just the overall interest in more fine art. I think it's definitely had a, a negative impact in kind of holding holding things closed, holding them in the vault, whether it be physically or digitally. And the fact of the matter is most major institutions are showing no more than two, three, four percent of their collection at any given time. They possess the world's culture. And so looking at these huge initiatives 
to free the world's culture, to make it open and accessible for access, you know, well, clearly for access uh, for all, but also for remixing, for reimagining, for augmenting things um, outside of the, you know, the fine art space is very important. And so, yeah, certainly it's had an impact. If you're uh, kind of like people have said in the music industry, they the head was in the sand. They held off on, you know, really seeing how powerful uh, peer-to-peer would be and streaming and so on. And everybody took a haircut, surely. Um, in the case of the museum, you know, given the the changing of demographics, the changing of interest, um, you know, the former chief digital officer at the Met would say, you know, you're you're not competing with other museums. You're competing with uh, Candy Crush. You're competing with Netflix. And so there's more distractions. There's more access to things than ever before. So to step up to the plate and to really hammer home your value, your importance, distribution is critical. Yeah, I, I love two things you point out. I mean, one is you're not competing against other galleries or museums. You're competing against Candy Crush. And that's something which if he, along with the entire sort of institutional art world, embraced what could they do? Because I think that's such an important thing in a way that if they work together, you know, could figure out more creative solutions to beat Candy Crush. But it's something that, you know, right now, I feel like it's done in more silos. You know, maybe he's thinking about it, but others aren't thinking about it. You know, the other thing is in a small rant that I have is around, I love this point of, you know, they they only show two to 4% of the artwork that they have and they're holding the key and locking away, you know, these these cultural icons and, and um, you know, the the uh, yeah, these culture icons. And with artists, and I tell them this, that play into the system. I mean, I think artists could be such an amazing agent of change if they embrace digital and they embrace the new way of getting their art out there online and exposing it to people. And still you see them playing into the system of, you know, I need to be in a gallery. And I tell them, you know, that's your choice. And I might disagree with that choice for you to do that personally. But what really saddens me is that you're keeping your art away from so many other people that could really enjoy it. And as a result, the adoption, I think, of art in a broader way, I mean, you know, that more people would be into art. And so it's interesting because it's not just in institutions, is my point, but it's also in the hands of the artists themselves. Yeah, I mean, for for young and emerging artists, I mean, I can only make the parallel between young and emerging musicians that have kind of stepped away from, hey, we're going to sign a music, you know, we're inside a contract with a major label and, and so on and cut out that middle, you know, that middle element to really be as close to their fans, engaging their fans, leveraging tools to do that as effectively as possible and going as peer to peer as possible. So I think for an artist, if there were tools available for them to kind of run like a, you know, a solopreneur or an entrepreneur in this case, uh, create a far more vibrant ecosystem for them where they don't feel like they need to rely on the gallery um, or need to rely on those other things. So I think like with anything, you can hack it, you know, you can hack it, you can life hack it, you can art hack it. So uh, if I, if I were an artist today, I know that that's the approach that I would be taking rather than sitting home waiting for David Warner to call me and, and, and rep me, you know? Absolutely. And it has to change that it's that mindset, you know, whereas, Right now, it seems like the ultimate goal is getting that call from David Zorner. You know, it's actually not, in a way, getting their work out there. I mean, they may say it is, but their actions, I think, can be quite different sometimes. Okay, so 
Taking it slightly broader, we've talked about museums and we've talked about the role of artists in this. I mean, if we look at this from a broader perspective, how do you see technology continuing the way to influence that artists tell their story and the way people experience art perhaps outside of museums and that becomes more part of their everyday life? It's such a great question and it's something that every museum around the country is asking and artists are asking and of course brands are asking is how do we be as present uh, to as many people as possible? How do we integrate our, meshi- uh, our mission or our brand or our aesthetic into everything around us? And so I think a lot of that can be uh, executed through partnership and other means. And what I would love to see if I was a museum today, I would want to be everywhere. I would want to be on the side of the, you know, on the big belly trash receptacle on every corner. I would want to be on the backs of, you know, coffee cups. I would want to be on the side of the, you know, the subway. I'd want to be everywhere humanly possible to kind of spread the aesthetic to lure you in. And some of those things are fairly traditional. I mean, around Boston, you have those little cultural flags on the lamppost for a museum exhibition. There's a Murakami exhibition right now, and you certainly see that. Um, But thinking through digitally, how can I uh, leverage what everybody else has been doing? Everybody else, meaning startups and, and, you know, companies leveraging, retargeting and hyper-targeted marketing and things of that nature to really put that out there. And so whether that be partnering with uh, the mass brands that are available to get my uh, artistic, you know, aesthetic out there, I look at like what Pepsi, PepsiCo has a company called LifeWater. They commission some artists like Momo. And now when I walk down the street um, or, or walk by, you know, a convenience store, I see these beautiful, vibrant pieces of art in front of me. And, and for me, that's exciting because I know the artist's work and I love it. But for other people, that might be their gateway into valuing visual culture in a new way. So I think through partnerships, there's a lot of uh, unlocked potential for artists or organizations that work with the art. I love that. And we'll, we'll talk to the most famous artist, and he talks a lot about uh, brands and their role in, in artists getting out there and that idea of, of is it selling out or not. So. Yeah, my friend Juan Treviso, he'd be a good, as a side note, he just signed a big thing with um, Perrier. And he's the face of Perrier and all these commissions. And so, yeah, is that selling out? I can tell you what his, what some of my other friends up here in Boston think. Um, but making a living, he's going to be able to produce things that he otherwise wouldn't. He's going to be able to meet people. He's going to be able to have visibility that everybody else would just dream of. Brandon, you've handled these tough questions with ease. Here's one I think might be able to stump you. Okay, you were in the music industry before. Do you think art will ever be as popular as music? No, I don't think so. Again, I love art, but I don't think art will ever be as popular as music. I I love Artsy and I love what they're doing. And I've read their founders uh, op-ed in the Wall, I think it was the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago about the evolution of music. Um, and how it's infiltrated and it's more pervasive than ever before in art having the potential to do that. I think given uh, given the fact that art um, is, for the most part, extremely visual, um, uh, you can't, you know, take, you can't listen to art uh, in the same way you can listen to music on your morning commute. Um, you can't listen to art in the same way you can when you're working throughout the day. So, 
I think that um, art in a broad term, music is art, but visual art, paintings on walls, sculptures and galleries, I don't think it will ever crack that, you know, crack that feeling um, or, or maybe that's not, the, that's not the right way of putting it. Um, clap, clap. Um, I don't think it will ever, I don't think it will ever become as accessible as, as music. And I think that's all right. I think there are varying, uh, levels of mass culture and popular culture. It will become to be more important, um, you know, in the future, but it won't be to your exact, you know, to your question, it will never be as popular as music. Okay, so it's, it, and so it sounds like you know if if artists are working with brands and it's on your Perrier and it's on your trash can you know in New York City or Boston City and it's um you know it's on your phone you've got uh, something and you're going to the museums I mean it'll be more part of our everyday life perhaps a pop culture perhaps you know everyone will own an art piece so it'll use like you said be more pervasive but it won't be as popular. Yeah, I mean we can you know I think we can agree on a couple things about. Um, just even within the last month, um, you know, looking 30 days back or a couple of weeks back, Snapchat choosing to, you know, partner with Jeff Koons um, for, you know, their arts, uh, for their arts project or for their arts feature or whatever they, whatever they're calling it. And so I think that is a, that's a positive sign, but you look at what Snapchat is, it's visual. Um and you look at um, things of that nature and you say, hey, you know, on one side, maybe they could have partnered with Katy Perry. Maybe they could have partnered with um, some other big pop artist, but they chose to partner with a with a visual artist, uh, a visual artist who happens to have a huge brand um, and has already had uh, partnerships with, you know, clothing brands and, and so on. Um, but I think that's a really interesting thing to see. Um, you know, just even recently, but at the end of the day, um, art as popular as popular music, I, I don't think so. I mean, music is, uh, again, pervasive and can be experienced. Uh, you know, I could be listening to music right now while I'm talking to you. I'm not. But, you could, you, you know. could be looking at art too. All right. That's true. I am. <laughs> you are. Let's jump into a rapid fire. Okay. You ready? Yep. First question. Who's your favorite artist? Who's also a musician? I wish I knew the musical talents and backgrounds of all of my favorite visual artists. I want to give you some alternative facts and say that Max Beckman was an amazing xylophone player and Joop van Lieshout is really good at the glockenspiel, but I don't know those to be true. You know, on some real talk, uh, more broadly as an artist, Amir Kusturitsa one of the most incredible filmmakers who's ever lived has a band called the No Smoking Orchestra. I've seen them live and actually stayed in his B&B in Montenegro a couple of weeks ago because I love his work that much. Um, so from a art being as broad as film, I would say Amir Kusturica would fall into that bracket. Great. I, lo I love the fun facts. Thank you. Who's your favorite superhero and why? Space Ghost. So Space Ghost, 1960s aesthetic, Hanna-Barbera. What I like about Space Ghost is that Space Ghost was able to evolve in such a interesting capacity where you look at him battling these supervillains back in the 1960s. And then today, or rather in the 90s to today, he became friends with his supervillains. So you have Brack and Moltar and that little Mantis dude. 
Um, they're all friendly. And they had, you know, a talk show called Space Ghost Coast to Coast, where Space Ghost would interview, uh, you know, uh, Marky Ramone and Tom Waits. And it was super irreverent and probably inappropriate for my age when I was watching it when I was little. Um, but Space Ghost for sure. All right. Space Ghost it is. Love it. Who are two companies, institutions, artists that you think are doing the most interesting things with the intersection of art and tech? That's a really difficult one. Like, I almost don't want to answer it in that the boundaries aren't being pushed as extremely as they could be. There's the marketplace side, there's the artist side, there's the experience within the museum at the art side, and, and of course, the work that my company is doing and the work that your company is doing. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to name drop the tech giants for the work that they're doing. I don't want to be like, oh, you know, Tilt Brush is the coolest thing and there's an artist in residence program or this company is doing that. So, it's a really challenging question to ask. I'll accept your soft answer because, I mean, that's the whole point, actually, of this podcast is to push forward that conversation. And I completely agree that there isn't really enough being done and that the boundaries can be pushed so much further. So, Brandon, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. For the audience out there, I mean, where can we find you? Where can we find QZM? I'm available across all uh, social networks and mediums. Uh, Brendan Siecko on Twitter and Instagram. You can check out my company, QZM, at QZM.com. It's spelled like museum, but with a C. And I look forward to hearing you. If there's anything that you loved or agreed with or disagreed with, uh, feel free to reach out to me, Brendan, at QZM.com. And we'll include that in the uh, show notes. Cool. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's the end of today's episode. Be sure to check out QZM on Twitter at QZM and at QZM.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. Leaving a review is super easy and it helps listeners like you discover the podcast. Oh yeah, and don't forget to check us out at State of the Art on Twitter for behind the scenes photos, a sneak peek to next week's episode, and really cool art videos you're going to want to show your friends. Thanks again to Van Gogh for sponsoring this episode and to all of you for listening. Remember, if you're an artist looking to create more, or a buyer wanting to enrich your home with original art, visit bangoart.co slash podcast and save 30%.